Hey everyone, this is your host, Gans, and welcome to another episode of the CE Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what is going on in European technology. Today, I'm doing things a bit different and bringing you two guests instead of one, Fabrizio Rinaldi and Francesco Di Lorenzo, founders of Mailbook, a Milan-based company that compiles all your favorite feeds, writers, and newsletters in a daily email digest. I've been a fan of the Mailroom team for some time now, so it was an absolute pleasure to sit down with these guys to talk. We cover absolutely everything. Fabri and Franz, origin story and the path that led them to build Mailroom. Why an obsessive focus on design matters so much. The talent tech ecosystem, the advantages of running a bootstrap company, why Fabri and Fran decided to raise money from earnest capital instead of a traditional European venture fund, and much, much more. Though our conversation was a bit shorter than my usual episodes, Fabri and Fran absolutely delivered. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Hey, Fabri. Hey, Fran. Uh, welcome to the CTL podcast. How are you guys doing? Great, Gods. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Great. Take me back to the first time you guys met. <laughs> what were you thinking when you saw each other? Do you expect to become co-founders? So I think uh, Fab uh, is uh, the official storyteller for this <laughs> part. <of laughs> yeah, I, I'll take this one. Uh, so basically, we, we met on Twitter around five years ago now. Uh, we started tweeting at each other about tech and other interests like, like that. Uh, it was like the Italian tech bubble. And um, uh, around that time, uh, Inbox by Gmail uh, came out and it was, it was such a great service and we both loved it. And um, pretty randomly, I created a mock-up uh, of uh, what an Inbox by Gmail Mac client uh, could look like just for fun. And uh, I, I wouldn't even... I wasn't considering myself a designer at the point, really. It was just mo- mostly a hobby. But I tweeted, tweeted the, the mock-up and uh, Francesco picked up on it, uh, loved it. And basically, after a few hours, he sent a DM uh, saying, hey, by the way, here's a working version of, of an inbox by Gmail client for Mac. Uh, so a very no-bullshit approach. He just did it to send it to me. And basically, we started working together. And since then, basically, we, we always kept working on uh, first-side projects uh, and then even side-by-side an uh, European uh, startup uh, you might be familiar uh, with, uh, which is Bending Spons. Uh, they make iOS subs. And then uh, after uh, Bending Spons, we decided even to, to quit the job together to start our own thing. But like, um, I'm, fast, I'm doing a fast-forward here. So like that, that was the, the, the origin story, I would say. Yeah, I think it, it took us a couple of years to meet in real life before, um, since yeah. starting to work together. So that's quite uh, unusual. Maybe at that time, now a bit more. <laughs> yeah. What did you do in that sort of first co-founder date, that first time you guys met in real life? I think we went to eat uh, sushi because we, ju- we had just moved. I, I, I had uh, recently moved to Milan, so... Uh, sushi was a novelty also for me so we did uh, I think we did that we had lunch together then um, uh, we tweeted a picture because that was a huge event for us <laughs> yeah not much more I think yeah so from there to boxy right boxy was your first official product yeah basically during the whole first year of working together we were remote 
Uh, I was still in the south of Italy, then Francesco moved to Milan, and we were working uh, at the launch first, and then we kept improving the product without meeting. And, uh, and so Boxy was this uh, the inbox by Gmail client for Mac, the original Boxy. And then after a few years, we decided to turn it into Boxy Suite, which then became our uh, core business and the product that also basically allowed us to uh, start our own thing, our own startup, because it was uh, doing good revenues and basically it enabled uh, all of this in the end. I was a Boxy client back in the day, like way before the Boxy Suite. I was using Inbox and I hate to use my email on the browser. So I was looking for something and I think, I, I don't know how I found you guys, but the product was just incredible. So it was then just you sort of working as a side project uh, remotely? Yeah, that was it. We, I, also, Fab was a huge uh, Inbox uh, fan. So like we poured his soul on that project and customizing it, making it, making it look like um, a cup. So yeah, we worked remotely on it, I think for a couple of years until Google discontinued it. And uh, we were extremely saddened by that, even more, even more our users. And I think uh, since then there hasn't been a, an email client uh, as good as the inbox by Gmail. Mm. Yeah, we still miss it in a way. Yeah, and also I think uh, like we, we, we didn't even realize how email wouldn't be uh, central to basically almost everything we did afterwards. Like we thought, okay, maybe we'll do something completely different after this. But then Boxy Suite came later and then I read it, for example, more recently, and it was like a newsletters network. And after I read it, of course, Mailbrew, which is our main focus now, and Mailbrew is centered around an email digest you get every day. So we, we always worked around email, it would mean huge email, Freaks, let's say. Why this obsession with email? I think like uh, it's been in a way or another central to, at, at least for me, my, my personal experience with technology, my relationships I have online. And uh, at many points, even my to-do list uh, with Inbox by Gmail uh, and also other apps that, that made uh, uh, email also into a to-do list. Uh, now it uh, actually, it, it's again more around just personal connection for me. Uh, for example, since I've been using uh, Hey, which was introduced recently. But yeah, it was, uh, I think, yeah, just central for me, uh, many things I do uh, online. Yeah. And so you, you guys coincided for a while at Bending Spoons, which is probably Milan's most successful technology company, I'd say. Why do you think? that company is so successful. And did you ever try to export anything from Bending Spoons to Superlinear or Melbro? Great question. So I think um, they are so successful because um, they are extremely focused on uh, what they're good at. And uh, they found this model that works uh, really well and they just uh, keep repeating it uh, again and again. And it works, it works great, it's a, it's a great business. And um, I think the, the, the great insight there is also the fact that uh, they decided to move back to Italy. They were actually based in Denmark. And they, their assumption was that there is very good talent, tech talent in Italy, and it's also underpriced. And um, yeah, what allowed them to scale so well and uh, do so well, I think, is uh, having these uh, uh, engineers that are uh, Silicon Valley level, but paid uh, with Italian salaries. And uh, I think uh, this allows um, 
great economies of scale in terms of producing uh, tons of high-quality apps. And that's what ultimately allowed them to reach this level. I think now they are the top iOS publisher in Europe or something like that. Mm. Yeah, and if I can add something, uh, like I remember um, coming on board as a, the only designer after one of the co-founders, we, we, who was also a designer. But of course, being one of the co-founders, it, it was also super busy on many other aspects of the company. So uh, at least at the beginning, it, it was even a bit overwhelming for me, uh, like having to design all kinds of apps uh, from scratch. And uh, so for sure, it's been an incredibly formative experience for me. And something that I used to do maybe more before joining Mendy Spoons, it, it was trusting my gut instinct on basically everything I did. While at, at Mendy Spoons, I probably learned more also to be uh, scientific in the design decisions that I take. And, and they have a very scientific approach to basically everything they do, from creating uh, designs to making paywalls, and they, they're big on, the, uh, on uh, data science. Uh, so that's definitely something that... Uh, I, I, I still uh, do every day and then I cherish, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, of your design, so you're one of the most talented designers like I've met. And uh, Fran, I'm sure your code looks just as polished on the back end. So why are you both so obsessed uh, with sort of polish and pixel perfect and crafting these great experiences? Because you spent, and I can see it from Twitter, you spent an inordinate amount of time just thinking about details and interfaces and, 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 and the product. Uh, okay, so at least for me, uh, of course, thanks, by, by the way, for uh, acknowledging this. And uh, we release web details and sometimes it takes a tremendous amount of effort. So really appreciate it. And I would say, at least for me, it's very personal because I am like, I, the main reason why I started doing design and thinking more seriously because I, I love doing it, of course, uh, and doing these kind of things with the highest possible quality just makes it much more fun. And I think it also is almost always a net positive for the users and, and then for the company. And I think there are companies, companies that might fail to see how always waiting the details uh, might have uh, an effect also on revenues or growing a user base. Also because at the beginning, it's hard to see how having this kind of... Uh, 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 quality threshold, a minimum threshold that can have results because often there are no results in the very short term, but like we've seen that working this way, usually at some point people notice and they say, this is so much better than anything else I've used. I uh, was super impressed with the design, etc., etc. And um, And also design is not just about the visual. As you say, the, the code has to be... Uh, uh, up for the, for the same standards, let's say. Uh, so yeah, in the end, it, it makes the process better for us uh, and it always showed also very tangible results in terms of user engagement and, uh, and, and also profitability in the end. Yeah, well, I would add to that that it's not as um, easy as it looks from the outside because it's a cost, constant um, uh, battle, let's say, because um, I'm, I'm trying to be, we try to be pragmatic because we are a small team, so... Uh, we, we got to stay focused and uh, like don't overdo it. So there is this constant struggle trying to decide whether, whether it's enough to, uh, when we need to, to ship. And um, I, I come around on this because uh, I used to be much more pragmatic and ship st stuff in a much rougher state. 
but uh, seeing the amount of uh, also inbound opportunities and uh, people that just reached out because they were amazed by the you know, the Melbourne landing page or app, this has given us so much uh, opportunities that now I'm much more uh, I, I'm I'm okay with dedicating a ton of time to it because I think it's uh, it's worth it. Talk me about your sort of your product process. Do you do sprints? How do you make sure to balance that and sort of still keep shipping stuff? Because you also ship quite a bit. Yeah, so um, the way we work usually is um, we have these, um, uh, these boards where we track, um, we track all the user feedback that we get. Then we have uh, quite a lot of it. And then there is our vision, long-term vision for the, for the product. Uh, which um, goes um, around what uh, what the user uh, tell us, but it's not just that; it's uh, our our vision for it. And basically, what we do is um, uh, we think in sprints, and these sprints uh, don't have usually a fixed amount of time allocated to them. We usually take all the time uh, uh, that's needed. This has, of course, its uh, its process, its process and cons, but um, we try to keep it under two months usually. And uh, what we try to do is, um, at the end of all this uh, process, have, uh, have uh, a feature to ship something that users would be excited about. And that's to keep the growth momentum going, because up until this point, we have been, all our uh, growth efforts have, have, centered around, have been centered around the launches. And this worked great for us. And we are trying to keep it up. So each, um, each time we have a feature, we try to make a big splash of it. And uh, yeah, yeah, and I think also something that we we try to do, and I think it uh, pays its dividends, is the fact that we often swing between very high-level tasks and goals that have a huge impact on user experience, and it's mostly what Francesco was referring to. So, for example, recently we introduced the read later feature to Mailbrew. So, to recap, Mailbrew lets you receive a digest from your favorite topics via email every day. And we also added now a read letter feature that lets you send any kind of link and anything you want from around the web to Mailbrew. So the next day you have it in your inbox. And so this was a main new feature that really moved the needle uh, in terms of user experience. But at the same time, we then swing also back to little fixes and also sweating the details and what, what I was talking about before, uh, because we never want to like lose focus also on the overall quality of the product and also the little things and details that also impact the user experience. Maybe in little ways, but little ways that matter often. So we don't let big sprints crush little things that would just end up in a backlog. And we try to swing back and forth between, uh, between these things usually. Also following our gut instinct, for example, we, we also trust our instincts in terms of prioritization because for example, recently, uh, we had a pretty strict roadmap in terms of what sources to add or what features to add. But for example, one day we realized uh, how important it would be to have your um, calendar events in your uh, daily digest every day. And like we didn't wait a certain amount of sprints to end or uh, any kind of prioritization to happen. We just decided, let's do this because we really feel like this moves the needle and we probably ship it in a few days and we just do it. So I like how we're certainly more structured these days, and this surely helps, even if it's just a tiny team. But we also leave some space to follow our instincts and just do things when they feel right, which is usually something that it's 
very very hard to do when a company grows so for sure we we enjoying the enjoying this process while, while we can yeah absolutely it's one of the sort of luxuries of being uh bootstrapped or uh small or having a small team right so <laughs> you better enjoy it for now <laughs> so let's let's take a step back when was the moment you decided to quit your job how did that feel at the moment it lasted uh, six months <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, that, that that was like uh, a long and, uh, in some ways, even painful process. Because on one side you have like this growing company that uh, pays a nice salary, and uh, you made friends there. Uh, so of course, it's uh, never an easy choice to. At the same time, we we're really not the uh, nine to five guys. Uh, we. Uh, really cherish the freedom we want to keep every day. Uh, maybe we can go a bit into more uh, our uh, daily schedules and uh, and something like that later. But like that being said, uh, we really, really wanted to uh, also go back on focusing on our uh, own things, basically. Because while working at Benny Spoons, like uh, we were always open about the fact that we were working on our side projects as well. Uh, but after a while, one year and a half, around one year and a half in, uh, we realized just that we didn't have the mental bandwidth and energy anymore to, to keep doing all those things at nights or in the weekends. And, and actually now, uh, in hindsight, uh, we really risk burnout. And actually, like personally, I felt burnout after quitting for a few months because like the last year working at Benispons, Basically, almost every day after work, we were working on our own things and they got really, really tiring. But still, the decision took months because it was very hard to find that point where we felt comfortable with the revenues coming from Boxy Suite, which we launched uh, almost around the time where we left uh, Ben Sponsor, where revenues made us feel like, okay, we have the right amount of leeway to leave our jobs and don't feel like we have two months to be super profitable or it's done. And, uh, and in the end, I also think that we've been quite courageous also in hindsight because we actually didn't have years of leeway when we left. It was a bit less than that. So we had to uh, reduce our uh, uh, risk aversion and uh, made the job at some point. Yeah, and we were also the, the first to leave, I think, also. <laughs> yeah. uh, because, um, yeah, it's basically one of the best jobs you can get uh, in Milan. So both our families, our friends and ex-colleagues called us crazy. <laughs> didn't feel like that at the moment. After a while it did, now it doesn't. So yeah. I think it's uh, the, the classic startup journey of um, having regrets and then uh, make it, it all makes sense uh, in the end. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a bit about burnout because I was in a very similar position, right? So. How did you manage that burnout? How did you make sure that you had enough energy to sort of restart work again? I think that for me, the biggest realization is that avoiding burnout is not about scheduling vacations or like make sure that after two months you take 10 days off because like you, you don't reach any kind of balance that way. And for me, what brought the most calmness in my life and now like I feel also more energized and less stressed is the fact that I improved my daily routine and I focused a lot on having uh, breaks during the day for example like we both take a pretty long break midday usually late in the morning we 
uh, we were off for uh, workouts and then runs and we started working again after lunch with no rush. Uh, and that's, for example, helping both of us uh, feeling very good about also working late potentially because our daily routine is great otherwise. And so we, we don't even worry about pushing more some days since we, uh, on average, uh, keep a great uh, work-life balance like every day and not waiting for vacations and stuff like that. And um, while I, were, I was working at Benny Spons and at the side project that we had, it was like the opposite. Basically, I was waiting to, uh, to be off work, to start working on my thing. And, I, and that felt healthy because that felt to me like I'm working on things that I love, that I enjoy doing, doing so I won't feel bad about it I, and it won't affect my health. But like it, it did greatly because there was basically almost no time to really recharge. Maybe every once in a while, it was the occasional vacation and we even did uh, amazing company retreats with vending sponsor. But like if my day-to-day -day is working 10 or 12 hours between day, day job and side projects, uh, it will be very, very difficult to, to properly recharge and, uh, and take care of your health. So that's kind of my takeaway from, from this experience. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Uh, unfortunately, there is no way to avoid burnout if you're working uh, that, that much. And we certainly did for the first year when bootstrapping this. And um, one advice I can give if there are people listening which are in the same uh, situation is like, uh, be gentle with yourself. I think it's it's required to to. Uh, there is no way around that. If you have a full time job and also want to start your side thing, you have to do that. But in the end, remember to take care of yourself because uh, when even when you leave, you will have um, like uh, I think we were um, we had this uh, this stress lasted even after leaving for up to six months. So we paid a high price for that. And looking backwards, we would have uh, we, we could have taken things a little bit uh, slower. We probably wouldn't have made uh, such a huge difference. Very interesting because at the moment you're sort of rushed because you think it will make a big difference. So yeah, I don't know. I think this is something that goes into everyone's mind, and it's very interesting to see um, how you guys manage that. What's your day to day like? Like, do you have any frameworks for time management other than just taking that? long sort of break and just working out so i think uh, uh, going back to what fab said uh, like um, doing this was as much of a it was not just a business decision starting our own company but it was like kind of a makes me think when people uh, talk about lifestyle businesses in a derog derogative way it was a, a lifestyle choice uh, doing our own thing and this uh, entrepreneur part so uh, like uh, our day-to-day integrates in um, fitness we try to work out every day and uh, integrates um, like high level thinking about where we want to take the product and then there is uh, of course execution mode we are uh, builders we try to allocate as much time to that uh, as possible and that's for me that's usually uh, early in the morning i leave the rest of the day especially the afternoon for meetings and calls uh, apart from that um, don't have any major insights yeah, I think like it's very important for uh, people in our position, for example, leaving the company and trying to find the right schedules, the right workflows, to really focus on how you feel about working, also about what times in, uh, of the day you're productive or not and stuff like that. Like, for example, uh, especially at the beginning, we felt that having left our day job, 
being productive and having our own company required working together side by side from early morning to the afternoon like people usually do when they start starting together also because there's the narrative where uh, uh, like um, your co-founder is, is almost like a spouse so you have to spend all, all the possible time together and stuff like that but then for example slowly we realized that we we'd rather stay home in the morning usually uh, because we like the, the focus time the relaxation also of not having to commute in the morning where all people uh, commute together and so like very slowly without even telling it, telling it to each other we started working every day every morning from home and then we meet each other at, at the office in the afternoon and this just feels natural to us and that's how we're working basically every day now so for sure we we really enjoying the fact that we we can uh, make the, these kind of decisions uh, regarding our schedules and, and workflows and like and we're all, all, also always uh, changing and making proposals and giving uh, each other feedback always focusing on keeping the right balance between uh, deep work also relaxation reading time explorations and even side projects and and of course the the meaningful work that we want to keep doing every day together uh, now basically uh, 99% of the time on uh, mailbrew it's it's very interesting because you guys did something with mailbrew that most european tech companies don't first you bootstrapped uh, which is not common right now like sort of the 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 narrative right now is you should go build something and go raise from someone, which is something that, that I saw in the US, let's say six, seven years ago, and now it's very prevalent in Europe. So you started by bootstrapping, and then you raised money from Ernest Capital, which is a US fund, and it's slightly different than the typical venture capital fund. So maybe, can you explain a bit uh, what Ernest is, how you guys thought about bootstrapping and then raising from them? I think it's been a, uh, an interesting journey because we, on some key things that we do, we, we've deeply changed our minds uh, during these uh, few years of working together. And for example, uh, taking investments in one of these areas, because at, especially at the beginning and right after funding our own company, uh, we were pretty sure we were never going to take uh, investments. Like we were saying, let's just reach profitability. We'll always be free. We don't really need investments because it, maybe it will be a slow growth, but we were seeing some growth in our business. So we, we didn't think it was necessary. Then our first approach to this world was with Y Combinator because we decided to apply after another founder. Basically, we had a call with another founder, mostly about his company, one of feedback, and he recently was in a YC batch. And he discovered Mailbrew and he said, like, Mailbrew is so amazing. Uh, you guys would be a perfect fit for YC. You should try. And we were still in that mindset. I don't know. We, we don't really want to think about that, that kind of journey of taking investments. But then we decided to give it a shot. And uh, it was super important to do it uh, because, like, it made us put everything we do in perspective. Uh, it made us focus more on high-level things regarding Mailbrew and its vision, long-term vision. So we did the process and, and apply um, late, actually. And uh, like the bar for late applications is even higher than from normal application. And, and even with the late application, we reached the interview stage. And unfortunately, for, uh, with the, all the COVID, the craziness, we, we couldn't go to San Francisco. So it was a Zoom call, pretty challenging <laughs> Zoom call. And uh, we, we didn't end up in, the, in that batch, but it was like really for experience also this one and basically made us reconsider 
also the uh, taking investments in general. And then we basically, uh, Tyler Tringas from Ernest had been following us uh, on Twitter for a while. Uh, we chatted uh, via DM uh, multiple times. And, uh, and when we took some time to really read the, the Ernest Capital uh, Manifesto and see how they do things, we realized that they were so much on the same page with us. And the journey that we could have like as a portfolio company in Ernest made much more sense than the traditional VC journey. Because basically, they, they invest, but they, they want to leave founder with all the freedom they want. They, they don't ask for a board seat. Uh, uh, they all often use the metaphor that they give you a buffet of uh, mentorship, uh, networking, advice, uh, but you take what you want. So then it's up to you, basically, after you take an investment. And so after a few calls, we were on the same page on basically everything. We, we found an agreement and uh, we were super excited to, to become an earnest portfolio company. And uh, we've been approached at other times also by other funds and private investors. But in the end, we, we feel like the earnest investment is exactly what we re- uh, need right now to, to grow. So we decided to, to basically uh, close this round with, uh, with the earnest investment. Another thing that makes it, makes it uh, super worthwhile is that uh, it's, I think it's their tagline or, tagline or something, but it's real. It's, it's a fund from bootstrappers for, for bootstrappers. So I think like 99% of the, of the money they raised from their uh, LPs is actually, it's money from, uh, from people that actually bootstrap profitable companies. So you are, you are in this network, in this community with all these people that uh, want to be the kind, that already built the kind of company that we want to build. So that's extremely valuable because we get uh, feedback, advice. There is this uh, perfect match with uh, this community we are in. I don't think we would have achieved the same thing if uh, we if we got into UIC or more traditional uh, funds. Yeah, and in the end, also we we were uh, also let's say kind of afraid I, like what impact uh, having uh, more cash in the bank could have on our way of working. Like, will we be too comfortable? Maybe since right now we have to work every month to build the profitability to keep things running. But in the end, like having having more leeway and having this uh, this cash actually. Uh, is making us work even harder because we know that now the upside is even higher with, with the, uh, the kind of potential unlocked by the money on one side and then the mentorship and advice on the other. Uh, so it was like a huge decision that is already making a big impact uh, on how we yeah. work. My mental model for Ernest is A, it de-risks yourself and then it gives you optionality, which is very sort of, which is the opposite than raising from a traditional firm. Let's say you go raise from whatever, Excel, then you're sort of, the moment you raise, it's soft to the races. You have to grow, 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 then raise another round in 18 months, grow, 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 and like so on and so forth, Series A, Series B, Series C. And now you guys have the opportunity to build sort of this semi-bootstrap, semi-startup business, and then either keep going that way, uh, I think the earnest sort of contract allows for that, or just raise more money, right? So have you guys thought about that? Is that part of the Yeah, I, I think the way you put it, the scribe is, is perfectly, because uh, the main reason for us was actually the risking and uh, like, uh, and also optionality, because uh, uh, when we decided to take the investment, the things also weren't going as good as they are going now. So the risking was a big part of it. After almost two years of running this company and uh, seeing some dark times, 
uh, we wanted to work more uh, have more uh, stability and be focused on uh, on doing the work without stressing about profitability and such and also as you said optionality i think uh, uh, accepting for earnest doesn't preclude us from uh, from anything so that, that's great uh, knowing that that we could uh, even raise money from a traditional VC to additional rounds but that's that's not required it's up to us yeah all these uh, all of these factors uh, are what ultimately uh, made us uh, decide to go with them and um, yeah we are we are happy with the decision stand stand it, it um, uh, I think uh, yeah we didn't regret that <laughs> yeah absolutely and uh, one last thing that I want to mention is that uh, another reason to, to take the investment was that we were also tired of not really being able to uh, like decide to take two months off to work on a single feature that will make a huge difference because we were always thinking, well, we can't really stop for two months, otherwise the, the product will be stuck and then we can't launch anything and the profitability, etc., etc. So having this money also enable, enables finding Finally, to make uh, uh, bigger bets, and it's something that we always wanted to do, and we're already planning for now. So, in our daily conversation, where we decide like what's on our roadmap, what we should work on, sometimes we uh, now we bring things to the table that could require months of work, and uh, having the uh, now the mental bandwidth and resources to make this kind of decision, uh, I think it it will play a big role in the future of our company. Yeah, it changed the, the way we think. If uh, Before we were reasoning in uh, months, weeks, now we are uh, looking uh, forward in years. We're planning uh, that far ahead. It's very interesting how sort of you can arbitrage time horizons because if you compete against other guys who are thinking in weeks and you can think in years, then that's a big, big advantage. Like the same way can like Amazon can think in, let's say, decades, right? So that's that's very, very cool. Yeah, also, I think uh, like it, it might be really the, the sweet spot because then on one side, we're uh, having like a longer time horizon and what you said, being more ambitious and then building bigger things. And then on the other side, we keep doing things like without saying anything, Francesco develops and shoots something in a couple of days and then say, hey, look, there's a new source in Melbourne or something like that. And so we keep also this approach where little things that we can do on our own, we don't overthink it, we don't overplan it. And so hopefully we'll keep this approach when, where we mix bigger bets and the very high level stuff with little things that we can just do and ship super, super fast. Why do you think a structure like Ernest is more popular in Europe? I think, um, like, is it popular in the, in the US? I think it's, it, it's it, these kind of funds are just uh, starting out. There will be more and more of them. And uh, as with most most things, uh, they will uh, they start in the U.S. I think they will uh, make their way here. They are already doing. And also, probably the bureaucracy and financial instruments available in Europe is also mature because we we realized how easier it is to to set these kind of things up in the U.S. So probably it's also a matter of modernizing the infrastructure that make these kind of funds possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and sort of. <laughs> You can't believe how many times I hear stuff like, oh, but in the US we can do this and in Europe it would be impossible. Uh, but I guess it is what it is at this point. So uh, speaking of sort of European tech, how involved are you guys with the Milan tech culture or tech ecosystem? 
So this is uh, embarrassing. <laughs> Basically, no, I think uh, we we have this um, our this we are mostly interested in following. I think uh, things on a on the global scene. So here in Milan, I think we we are not following it a lot, especially with COVID and with the, mm. all the events being uh, uh, stopped. Stopped, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like we, we've been uh, basically outsiders in the also European tech scene in a way and, and Milan tech scene. Uh, like our following on Twitter is mostly US. Like we meet, we'd always, yeah, been more uh, US centric and uh, world citizens than, uh, than locally based in uh, at least startup wise. Yeah, it's, it's funny how Twitter replaces like local tech communities and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely the same. So, as an outsider, do you think there's something unique about like the Milan tech scene? For us, uh, staying in Milan is mostly being, up until this point, at least um, a life choice. Uh, that sometimes we also question because it's also a very expensive city. And uh, regarding the handling of the epidemic, it's not being that great. It was actually, at some points, the worst place to be <laughs> in, these, uh, in these crazy times. But then it's also a city that offers all this infrastructure that we would need. Even just the, the place where we're working now, it's a we work and it's a great place. It would be a bit harder to find anywhere else. So in the end, it's mostly been about the lifestyle that we want to have. And uh, in Milan, we, we can have it uh, pretty easily. Yeah, it's definitely the place to be if you want to, if, you, if you're doing startups in Italy. I don't know about Europe, I don't know about the world. Uh, probably if the world situation was a bit different and if it wasn't for family, I don't know if we would be, if we would be here, yeah, to be honest. That makes a lot of sense. And I have to ask, like, what's the best coffee shop in Milan? Yeah, we'll have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, basically for the, I think for the first, and second year we work mostly out of coffee shops so it's uh, yeah it's uh sad that it? we, we can't uh, come up with one it was a tw 12 ounces the name of the one where we worked but it had like terrible music literally like the worst possible music to work uh, so that that got uh, a bit tiring after a while then it was starbucks where we loved the flat white but the 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 actual chairs like weren't super comfortable. So in the end, like, uh, and we tried also other co-workings, uh, a Moleskin coffee shop, which is pretty nice in the center of Milan. Uh, but then in the end, nothing really compares to, to uh, working in a, in a dedicated space. So we never found a coffee shop where we were just super happy about working there. Uh, we still go to Starbucks sometimes just to, to do some meetings and conversations that uh, yeah, don't require a laptop in front of us. I, I used to work quite a bit from the Moleskin coffee shop. I, I live like 10 minutes away from that. There's this coffee shop on the other side. I think it's close to Puerto Venezia. That's called Orsonero. That's really good. You should definitely check it out. And the weird thing is run by, by a Canadian guy, uh, not an Italian guy, but his coffee is, is worth it. We will go one of these days. <laughs> That's what the recommendation. Yeah. Just tell him I sent you. I don't know if you will remember me. It was like a couple of years ago, but tell Brent I sent you. Anyway, um, sort of, you mentioned the possibility of doing bigger bets. What's the most ambitious version of Mailroom then? I think that what probably will make the biggest difference 
in the future when we get to it is a, a sprint that we want to do where we'll focus solely on raising the bar on, of the quality of the content that we deliver every day. So right now, in a way, Melbourne is pretty straightforward because you define the sources that you enjoy reading, maybe blogs or Twitter accounts, etc. And we take the usually the most popular content and deliver it to you. But what we want to do in the future, and, uh, and it might be multiple sprints, you know, not necessarily one thing that we ship at a time, maybe it will be a certain amount of improvements we ship in a year or two, is uh, doing a much better job at resurfacing content, finding uh, hidden gems, or letting you read an article of one of your favorite people from the past that you might have missed, and also highlighting content that is more relevant to you based on the topics you're interested about. Like, again, go on and on. There are so many things that we can do, basically, to make sure that what you read every day that we send you is not just something that is nice to read and sometimes give you, gives you a couple of actionable links or valuable insight, but it's something that really becomes the essential part of your daily information routine. And that's going to be probably our main focus in the next few months. Are you going to go sort of all in and start hiring a team or you want to stay small for now? We are looking at it uh, more and more. That's uh, like uh, the other side of the coin. I would probably have answered that if um, I took the previous question. So we are already looking at our first hire and it's um, someone that will do growth for us. And that's exciting because um, growth has never been our strong suit. And uh, I think someone that's really great at that, 100% of the time, uh, focus on that is uh, amazing. And um, so we're looking at this role right now, but also uh, someone to help with development uh, because uh, we want to ship even faster. And we have our roadmap that's uh, uh, three kilometers long. So yeah, the, that's another thing that the earnest investment allows us to do, be more ambitious on that. And um, Took us quite some thought because uh, honestly, we are kind of having the time of our life, having a ton of fun, and adding other other people to the mix like is uh, uh, always um, uh, challenging and uh, could uh, could change this. But um, I think if we do this with the same mindset and and, and uh, like building this culture that it was always between us, this uh, kind of norms and this uh, the way we work. But now we are actually formalizing it formalizing it and even bringing it to other people, I think it could work and we could uh, stay small and with a team and uh, uh, still have a ton of fun. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you so much, guys, for coming. It was great putting some faces to the names. So I'll hope to do it again soon. Thank you, man. And congrats on all the work you do. Like It's super fun following you and seeing uh, Seed Table uh, grow. So uh, like I feel we early uh, being your guests here. And uh, <laughs> yeah, th thanks for having us. Thank you and likewise, guys. Thank you so much. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.